0: Talk Radio.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Inside Thrill Radio with special guests Mickey Browning, J.J. Hensley and Isabel Molnado, and of course hosted by your great host none other than Jenny Milchman. So to, you to remember here that all shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. Make sure you visit KensingtonBooks.com for more information. And also make sure you visit SuspenseMagazine.com. If you would like to uh, get our next issue, comes out on October 31st. Just email us at Editor at SuspenseMagazine.com and we'll send it on out to you and you can take a peek at it. So without any further ado, Jenny, you ready? We'll take it away.
2: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Inside Thrill Radio, a joint production of international thriller writers and suspense magazine. I am thrilled, that's my little joke tonight, to have a really special show, a show that's going to be interactive with guests. We have questions and likes on our tweets and Facebook page coming even as I speak. It's a show about law enforcement and the role law enforcement plays in writing and what happens when three law enforcement officers also have writing careers. I am so excited my guests. Tonight are Isabella Maldonado, author of Blood's Echo, J.J. Hemsley, author of Bolt Action Remedy, and Nikki Browning, author of Adrift. And each of these books, I hope you listeners, you know, got the titles. I will come back to them as well throughout the show. They are all three very exciting books that, in addition to just being good thrillers, really give you a look at a part of the world you might not otherwise see. Nikki's actually has the additional bonus of a lot of information on us. Scuba diving is one of the more claustrophobic and uh, unusual books I've read lately. And both Action Remedy by J.J. Hensley has, we'll talk about this, J.J., but he has a law enforcement character who's really flawed and really broken in a lot of ways. And I, I found that a particularly interesting element. And Isabella's novel, Blood's Echo, opens up with a exciting <laughs> drug scene that, that, that taught me a thing or two, and you guys know I know my drugs. Yeah, that's a joke. So welcome, everybody, Mickey and JJ and Isabella. Why don't we start, we'll go in alphabetical order. Mickey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about um, your book and the next book coming as well and the first book, Adrift?
0: Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to your show this evening. I'm very happy to be here. As you uh, just introduced me, I'm I'm Nikki Browning. I have over um, two decades in law enforcement and I am a graduate of the FBI National Academy. I actually retired as a division commander. And um, so when I was, right before I retired, the administrative division, which was everybody but the people that you actually saw in, in uniform. So I had internal affairs, I had the detective division ed training. I was the public information officer for the department. Um, throughout my career, I was also a hostage negotiator. So I learned to, to communicate. So of course with all of this police training, I decided to write about an amateur spoof. <laughs> and um, on, on a drift, uh, I actually chose a marine scientist and Mary Cavallo is the, the protagonist and she struggles to debunk a paranormal explanation and salvage her reputation after a ghost hunting documentary leader disappears from one of her dives on a Florida Keys shipwreck. So after I retired I became a um, professional dive master. So I got to actually meld two of my interests by writing about a crime and also being able to take it underwater at times. So I had a a really good time um, doing that. That's interesting. So you had the dive master experience. I was
2: wondering about that. I mean, one of the things that I found interesting and addressed, and you sort of pointed to it, is that there is this paranormal element, which, you know, usually I think we think of law enforcement as pretty hard-nosed, and, you know, if the uh, suspect is sitting there talking about ghosts, they're going to be skeptical. And you got at that in the book very well.
0: Well, that was the beauty of having a protagonist who was a marine scientist. I very much wanted to bring this story forward with a skeptic. And it was actually, the inspiration on this was um, based on a real event where there, there actually are paranormal dive teams um, and there was one down in the Keys on a boat and one of the divers actually suffered a medical emergency at depth. fortunately. The diver was fine, but it led to um, it led to the what-if game, and so that's where it just sprang from. And it was really fun to play with that because, uh, like my protagonist, I'm, I'm skeptical about that, but there's enough things in life that can't be explained that I'm not completely closed off to the fact that, you know, it's a possibility. And so it was fun to play with.
2: Hmm. Uh, Brian Robinson, I know, is one of our listeners and, in fact, has a question that we'll get to later. And his book, as well, opens with what a scene I found very claustrophobic. I will tell you scuba people out there, and even you snorkelers, actually, this applies to you as well, that the opening scene in Mickey Browning's Adrift has to do with waves and getting back on the boat and how hard it is. And you brought it to life just beautifully because – I had no idea what you were talking about at first when you said those waves were going to be a problem, and at the end of it i was like, oh, my
0: gosh, if there's so much of a ripple, how do you get on the boat? <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad
2: I did my job. J.J. <laughs> Hensley, you have a fascinating character in Bolt Action Remedy, which is part of a series, and you refer to your investigator, let me just say investigator's um, past, in bolt action remedy, but you also have a very intriguing and very unusual crime in the story. I'm not going to, there are no spoilers on Inside Thrill Radio, but it's right here in the flat copy, so I think it's okay to say that the location of the crime that's being investigated is right next to a very unusual um, uh, training facility. And because of where it proximate to, they know that the crime should only be committed by a very certain type of criminal. And then your character comes on board and he's the ultimate reluctant investigator. Tell us a little bit about yourself and Bulls humanity. Remedy. Okay. All right.
1: Well, thanks for having, having me on the show. Um, uh, my background is I was a police officer in Chester, Chesterfield County, Virginia, for a few years and then um, I became a special agent with the Secret Service. I was with them uh, for about seven years, uh, started in Richmond, Virginia and then went to Washington, D.C. Um, and then I, I took a different position with the federal government, a uh, civilian position uh, in the uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area and uh, um, now I'm getting ready to actually move to Georgia to uh, take a job with the uh, US Marshal Service Training Division at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. So, so been active, I've done a lot of active law enforcement now so on the training side and um, try to integrate that into to whatever it is. Um, as far as bold action remedy, um, that was that was that was a novel that uh, it took me two two other novels before that to get around to my my first novel. Resolve had been uh, set against the backdrop of a marathon, and I really I liked, and my readers seemed to like being able to integrate a uh, an endurance sport into at least the fringes of the story. And I wrote two novels after that: Measure Twice, The Chalk Outline, and I but the whole time I was trying to to work out uh, some other story where I could integrate some sort of endurance for it or just something where it didn't become the focus of the story as much as on the periphery. And then finally it dawned on me after toying around with trying to use a triathlon or a cycling race, I I thought I'd use something unorthodox and it dawned on me there's a sport of biathlon where, where everybody not only can everybody ski but they can shoot and I thought well that's just perfect, everybody has a gun already so let's do that um, and uh, that, that was where I came up with that concept and and uh, threw my my investigator Trevor Galloway into that situation.
2: Okay, so since you gave away the skiing thing, which I mean like I said it was right, in it's not copy but it I found problem. it very, it, it very, is, very but possible. I found, I'm really cautious about spoilers. I want all inside Thrill Radios to discover these authors because you guys are great and the books were so entertaining and also illuminating. I know a lot of readers out there of thrillers love learning something. Each of these books you will learn something, I promise you that. Um, So Trevor Galloway is your character. I found it very intriguing the image of these acres of white. And they're all going to be disturbed, so it wasn't like you could hone in on the one track through the, you know, untouched snow. And you had to kind of um, search for evidence and unravel the crime from that. Was there a lot, and I didn't realize you're connect that you had gone through a couple of other sports that you were considering extreme sports. So was there a lot of research you had to do, or are you
0: actually comfortable with this uh, physical endeavor yourself?
1: I'm I horribly uncomfortable with this. Um, I, my first book, I'm, I, I was doing a lot of distance running, so I was fine with the, the marathon um, link. And then my next two were police, more police procedural in nature, and that was my background. Um, and uh, this one, I, I can't even see. Uh, I, I'm, I would just fall on my face, much less if I was carrying a gun, I'd be dead. Uh, <laughs> So, so I, I had to do an extensive amount of research on this one and I, I contacted a, uh, an Olympian um, named uh, Kurt Schreiner who competed for the U.S. in Salt Lake City when I happened to be there working uh, security when I was with Secret Service. Um, but uh, I, I contacted him, I contacted several other people, did a lot of research online because I, I've watched biathlon, but you know, here in, here in the United States, we, we watch it you know, every time we win the Olympics comes around and we don't think about it again for another hmm. four years. But uh, it, it's more popular overseas. But I, it, was a, it was just a, the perfect hook for, for, for the story to, uh, to, to set it up the way I needed to set it up.
2: Yeah, it really was. It's the kind of thing where you're reading in the beginning and they're all, you know, the relevant people are talking about the crime and it seems impossible and then they kind of throw. Galloway on him, you know, flip him upside down. And we were like, yeah, of course it's possible. And, in fact, there's more uh, possible suspects than you could ever imagine. So it's very artfully done. Um, Isabella, tell us a little bit, I mean, Bloods Echo opens up. It's the kind of book that you are just thrown immediately into. You know, for the listeners out here who I know are interested in law enforcement, it's almost like you are a law enforcement officer, right, because the whole thing is going down the, the pivotal moments of this um, you know, I don't know what you call it because I'm not law well enforcement myself, but you know, the, the cat. the, uh, there's going to be a word for this. So my, my calling question is, what do you call it when an investigation is coming to its pivotal moment? But anyway, Blood's Echo opens with a great rendition of it because you're really there literally on the street, you know, um, seeing what happens and how it all unfolds. So tell us about Blood's Echo. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Isabella. And, uh, then we will continue, circle back around, I think, to research.
3: Um, Well, um, after 22 years in law enforcement, I retired as a captain, and um, I, too, also attended the FBI National Academy, and um, I also was a hostage negotiator and was the department spokesperson. So I have a lot of different positions on the department. Um, My last position when I retired, I was the commander of the Special Investigations and Forensics Division for my department. which was really great. That was an absolutely wonderful thing. That and being a precinct commander was over two of my favorite positions to do on, on my department. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and it was, a, it was a large department. So um, the, uh, the, the precinct that I commanded, I had uh, 150 sworn officers um, and hmm. served uh, about 125,000 people, in, that residents that lived within my precinct. So it's kind of like almost like being the chief of, you know, a medium-sized department because most departments in the U.S. are quite small. And so it was, it was fun to kind of, you know, have the opportunity to run your own show in that regard. And, you know, and everybody starts off in law enforcement. It isn't like the military. You can't come in as a lieutenant. Um, you can't come in as a commissioned officer or anything like that. It doesn't work like that. Everybody starts off in patrol. Um, as a slick-sleeve private, basically, um, when you come in. So you kind of work your way up, and it's, a, it's one of the things I like about law enforcement is everybody gets where they get. Um, after – I always knew I wanted to write, um, and I loved reading when I was um, working in law enforcement, but I didn't have time to write. Then when I retired, uh, I joined Sisters in Crime. Um, that was the first thing I wanted to do was to see, you know, what about, what about writing and all this, and, and I eventually – I joined this – I retired to Phoenix. And um, I joined the Phoenix chapter, and I eventually became the president of the Phoenix chapter of Sisters in Crime. And so that was really uh, a wonderful experience and really helped inform my writing and did all kinds of study. And it took about five years to really work on the art and craft before I, before I wrote my novel. Uh, I wrote several short stories and had them published first to kind of figure out how I wanted to do it. Then I wrote the novel, and um, it was – I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to take – when it was time to decide what to write, with Love Deco, I wanted to do something that was completely different. I felt that um, I did not have anything to add to New York, L.A., Chicago, you know, Miami, D.C., you know, those, those things. I felt mm-hmm. like they have been done so beautifully and so masterfully by so many talented people that I just felt like I want to do something completely different. And um, – I love Phoenix. I fell in love with Phoenix, and I wanted to write about a large, major city department, but I didn't want it to be one of the other ones that I – I love those, and I love all the stories, but I wanted to do something different. So I thought, I'm going to set this in Phoenix and the future. And the Phoenix Police Department, um, you know, they have over 3,000 officers. Um, it's a it's a huge jurisdiction. The population is like 1.6 million. It's the sixth largest mm. city in the United States. So it's big, and, that, and that's what I wanted because I wanted that kind of – Uh, large urban department feel. Um, The other thing I wanted to do that was completely different is I wanted my um, lead character to be not only um, female, but Latina. And um, as a Latina uh, police person, police officer, and then eventually a captain, I'm not the same as my lead character, but I kind of know where she lives and know where she's coming from. Um, But I, I thought this would be something, too, that's different. Um, you often will see maybe the person of color as the sidekick, but not as the lead. So I wanted to do that and have that be different. And then also, the other thing i would noticed is that, especially when I would see writers you know, writing about um, Latinos, a lot of times the bad guys would be Latino. You know, it would be just the cartel or whatever, or the gangbangers or whatever. And I thought, you know what, it, it really needs to inform the whole the whole shift which is that there are, it encompasses both sides of the law. There are so many um, that are on both sides of the law and we need to, you know, have the whole thing come out there. And then I wanted that to inform the cultural aspect of it. I wanted to bring in a lot of the multicultural stuff. Um, her family, their restaurant, all the fabulous Mexican food that we all love, Okay, and the tequila, Um, but anyway, um, the fabulous Mexican food that we all love. And other aspects of the culture, each book features a different aspect of Latino culture. And um, then the other thing, and that goes into the whole family part of it, too, is the book, instead of having my protagonist be this loner who is troubled, Um, I'm having it be someone who has an extremely rich and complex family life. And, of course, the family gets pulled into everything. But there's really – the book is kind of about three families. It's about um, her sort of large, boisterous, interfering and loving ethnic family. And it's also about um, the cartel family and how the, the family runs a business and how that gets involved. And then also the police family, because the police right. department is definitely a family. Uh, yeah. A it's family. interesting. Until, yeah, until
2: you said that, I didn't think about the fact that you did sort of flip-flop that loner character. But actually, without getting into that, I want to say that each of you, JJ and Isabella and Mickey, you all sort of have in your characters that they are fighting, some, fighting in a way to prove themselves and coming back from – Either something that's, you know, intimately tied to who they are, as you said, the uh, ethnic and, you know, the diversity issue. And, and, sure, being a woman of power high up in a, in a, you know, in a profession where that's not necessarily the norm. And, J.J., your character, Trevor Galloway, is definitely um, fighting a lot of personal demons and coming back from things and having to prove himself, maybe most of all to himself, and uh, Mickey, even even in your character, I mean, I feel as if there's a certain thing that Meredith is struggling for in trying to be taken seriously when she's investigating this very, very um, not-orthodox explanation. So do you each talk maybe a little bit about a character, your characters along that dimension, that dimension of having to prove something, that dimension of having to fight against where perceptions of them may lie? And we can start with I don't know, let's flip flop and let's go right into JJ. Um,
1: well, with uh, with the character I created with Trevor Galloway, um, I was I'm always careful to try to because I, I that's how I got into writing I read and listened to some of the early books, um, so much crime fiction, and uh, one of the things I wanted to avoid was the kind of a stereotypical uh, cookie cutter. Or Troubled top that has an alcohol problem, and and I've I've tried to steer away from that as much as I can. But um, the the I guess I I always had more problems with characters that were too perfect. Um, It always bothered me when the protagonist was all good and and uh, the antagonist was all bad, and I wanted to show more gray areas in there. So I I thought I think it's important to always have that internal struggle of some, some sort in the main character to give so the reader has some familiarity with him or some, some sense of emotional bonding because we, we all have our personal struggles and want to prove ourselves and I know that those of us who have been in, in law enforcement you know we start that from from day one in the academy when you're you know, when you're getting yelled at because shoe string loose or a loose thread and next found you. Know, you're down <laughs> Um, not that it ever happened to me, I was the perfect with it. Um, and uh, it's uh, you know I think, I think it goes from that, that you're always gonna have those internal struggles and then law enforcement, you know if you're in it long enough, of course you're gonna have um, you're gonna have some struggles, either emotional crisis or um, self doubt or um, temptation or whatever the case may be. And it's not as severe as what they play up in Hollywood and, and in some novels, but. Uh, I, I think that's an hmm. important aspect for, for Galloway and for, for a lot of characters, just so that the readers said, yeah, they're not perfect. They, I, I get that. They're, they live in the gray area just like, like most of us. But even though
2: they're figures of authority, they're, they're just as human and flawed and scarce.
1: Sure, yeah. I think I think, it, I think it, it's good to help hold people to a higher standard, but, you know, we also have to be realistic.
2: Hmm. Interesting. All right, Nikki, what's your take on the... Coming, you know, having to prove herself in a way, in Meredith's case or in your connection to that issue or whatever you'd like to say about it.
0: Well, with, with Meredith, um, she's had a couple of things that make her life difficult. One is despite being a marine scientist, she's actually a tuathologist, twos- which most people have no idea what that means, but she studies octopuses. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, because of an incident that happened early in her life, she's afraid of water. And um, she just refuses to let it interfere with her love of the ocean. So it's a dichotomy in that manner. But um, she's also, she's a skeptic, she's very rational, she deals with facts, she loves to analyze things. But she has a difficult time with people and so, You know, she comes from a very loving family, which I I also wanted to portray because I think there's a lot of broken characters who don't have that bond. And she does come from a very wonderful family, but she's never been able to replicate that in her own life. And so there's this underlying uh, story that goes along, along with her as she's struggling to make a home for herself in the heat. You know, she she was an Arctic researcher, and she lost funding. And so, she decided she wanted to be warm for a while. And, you know, she ended up down in the Keys. And, and it was only a temporary thing until she got her next research gig. So, you know, she's got some things, but I think we, we all struggle. I entered law enforcement in 1989. Um, things were becoming better, but they weren't great yet. Um, there's there's certainly always an outsider looking in sort of thing when when you're a minority in any sort of a profession, whether it's uh, by gender or ethnicity, and so you know there's there's things that you do have to overcome, and mm-hmm. so you know that's that's something that I think is very real. It, it's humanity. It, it hasn't changed whether. Um, it was 89 or, or today, there's always something that's going to keep you on the outside. And it's how you deal with it. It's how you overcome it. It's how you prevail that makes for an interesting story.
2: Hmm. Mickey, I just do have to tell you that I found it very funny when the captain of the boat was talking about uh, Antarctica and the Arctic with Mare, um, and I was sort of like, I get those mixed up too. Yeah. <laughs> you were, I think, supposed to laugh at him a bit, but I'm related. Yes, there's, there's funny stuff in Adrift, uh, uh, listeners. I want you to know that one of the interesting things about, I mean, I guess I didn't find this as much in Bolt Action Remedy. That one really tugged at my heartstrings. But there's humor, you know, in law enforcement and in the situations. And, and um, you know, it's neat when that comes through in a scene. But I, I am finding what you're both saying very interesting. I'm thinking, Isabella, that, you know, Phoenix is almost a character in Blood's Echo and certainly on the front lines of the uh, ethnic uh, issues that, that you talked about just a moment ago, even the Mexican food, you know, being almost an ethnic issue of today. And what's your response to the, the question
0: of sort of struggling to prove yourself in the book? Your oh yeah,
3: so. oh, this this is huge. I mean this is a huge part of what, what drives uh, my lead character, Miranda Cruz. Um, but this this also is part of what <laughs> what drove me. Um, I, I also, I came on in 1988, so it's the same thing um, on the department and it wasn't, it wasn't Phoenix, I, I started off back east just in, in the suburbs of D.C. is where my department was. But here's the thing. I remember I have a very, very vivid memory of, you know, I had just graduated from the police academy. I was so excited. I had my shiny new badge and uniform, and I was just, you know, I reported to my my, um, district station house, the precinct, for the very first time, and I'm ready to go. I walk in the station house. And one of the grizzled old veteran guys walks right up to me. He didn't even know my name. He didn't even know who I was. All he knew was I was the new one showing up, and I was the only female who was going to be on the squad. He walks right up to me, crosses his arms over his chest, glares out his nose at me, and says, Lennon, have no place in law enforcement. And he turned on his heel and stalked away. That was in my welcome the A. Correct. Oh, yeah. I was the only female on the squad. And, um... So, yeah, that that definitely started me out with the whole, okay, I need to prove myself. If I have that kind of personality, that's like instead of cowering and crawling away, it was like, you know what? He's going to eat his meat. And You're going to answer I'm going to do this job. Well, it's funny you should say that <laughs> because at the end of my career when I was a captain 22 years later, um, he did work under me. Um, he remained an officer throughout his career, and he did work under me. Um, I did not retaliate, but, but, yeah, I mean, it, it did ultimately evolve into that. But um, the thing is that, you know, even responding out to the public, it wasn't just, it wasn't needing to prove myself just in the station with the other officers, because Lord knows plenty of that went on, but in that when I went out on patrol, there were times when you would be called out, you would show up, um, and then the citizens would say, um, uh, honey, we're going to wait for the real police to show up. Oh, yeah, mm. it happened. Absolutely. yes. Yeah, because they weren't thinking that a girl, you know, would be able to handle whatever it was that was going on. So, you know, the, the, the public wasn't prepared for it, you know, and I, I remember, you know, another, another time someone asked me, well, I don't know what to call you. Are you a police woman? Are you a police mm. girl? And I just looked at yeah. my dad, how about police officer? That works. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. You yeah. know. So yeah, that, that all definitely happened, and, and so you use that to ensure, in, in my character, um, Miranda Cruz. Her situation is, you know, she is ashamed of her background, and she is hiding secrets, and she's hiding them from you know people on law in, in, in her department, people in law enforcement. And people in her family. I mean, she's hiding all kinds of secrets, and and, and she has a deep sense of shame that she overcomes. And, and yeah, she probably overcompensates, trying to prove herself. Absolutely. Mm.
2: Well, it's fascinating, and it's also the perfect segue into the book. So thank you. I'd really like each of you to give us kind of a day in the life. Your your I mean, there's some interesting and startling similarities right down to the with with Mickey and Isabel. <laughs> but can you each? Um, you know, the year after each other. But can you each give us kind of a day in the life? And I know that your careers really, you know, rose and changed. And, and JJ, you hinted a little bit about some changes. So, whatever day in the life you'd like to give the listeners of Inside Throw Radio, tell us what it was like doing your job. I mean, we're going to get to the writing part of our, your careers, but that's more familiar territory. But can you sort of tell us some illuminating, um, you know, what it was really like to be you at a given time in your law enforcement career. And let's start with Mickey this time.
0: Wow. Uh, There's so many different things to to choose from. Um, I like to joke that I became a professional writer the day I raised my hand and swore the oath of office Um, Mm. because, you know, we all sign on because, you know, we get to, Drive fast and carry a gun, but um, they to <laughs> tell us in the fine print that everything has to be documented. So, really, if it's a if it's a common day in the life, a lot of it is going from call to call and documenting um, small issues. I worked in two different jurisdictions, but they both had um, they both had colleges. They were both tourist destinations. So you had a lot of the same type of policing issues, um, but but the thing is, you can never get lulled into a, a sense of false security because that um, there's nothing routine about any of it. Even though you might see the same thing, you might pull over the same car, but you might have just stopped this car and they just robbed a, a convenience store.
3: So now you
0: know the the gangbangers that you've pulled over before um, have incentive not to talk to you this time. So things can actually um, devolve into a, a critical situation very, very quickly. Um, one thing that I, I remember one call in particular. Uh, it, was a, it was just a really, really busy Friday night uh, in Santa Barbara and we, we were just going from call to call. And occasionally, you know, you'd just be stuck going to a call by yourself. Well, I got a call of um, a person who was on PCP, And for anybody who's had to deal with somebody who's under the influence of a drug like that, um, it can go bad very, very quickly. And it's not something that you really want to do by yourself. But he was sitting on a bus bench, and he was rocking back and forth, and he was kind of hushed over and, and just kept rocking back and forth, so, you know, I approached very quiet, I dropped my voice, I was very soothing, um, I didn't want to, to startle him, and I said, you know, you, you look upset, and he goes, yes, yes, you know, and he's, he's just, you can just see how tense he is, I said, it looks like you want to hurt somebody, he goes, yeah, I said, do you hmm. want to hurt me, he said, I'm, a, I'm afraid I might, And I don't know where this came from, but I said, would it make you feel better if I put handcuffs on you? And he got Mm. up, he turned around, he placed his hands behind his back, and he said, yes, I would. I have never cuffed somebody so fast in all of my life. (laughs) Oh, Oh, wow. But it's one of those situations where it's, it's far more prudent. If you can talk a person into handcuffs rather than fight them into handcuffs, Mm. That's a much better way of doing it. Now, there's there's times where you, you know you're gonna you're gonna go to the ground with somebody, um, and that's expected. But you know when that happens, somebody always gets hurt, whether it's the person mm-hmm. that's going to jail or the officer doing the arresting. And and you learn really quickly as an officer that if you can go home unscathed at the end of the night, it's a really good night. So you mm-hmm. know there there is no typical day and day in the life um, but you know that that was one of the incidences that that I dealt with so it's so fascinating
2: that you tapped into that and you must have really been in the very intuitive state to see what his statement and how best to you know what what that that wouldn't anger him and in fact it would scram
0: by, by that time um, hospice negotiation was an ancillary position in both of the agencies that I worked for meaning that um, I was a patrol officer and then if we had an incident then, you know, I'd put on a different working hat and become a negotiator and someone else would come around mm-hmm. patrol um, or they'd call someone else in and when they activated the, uh, the response team so it's, it's something that, when, when you realize how to speak to somebody on the street, every, everybody has a story. And if you listen, you can really figure out how to handle the situation. Um, yeah. Sometimes you don't yeah. have that luxury, but for the most part, you do. And, and yeah. that was the, the beauty of, um, you know, being a little bit intuitive and, and wanting to find solutions to problems. It's one part psychotherapy, the way you're describing it. I did psychiatric emergency for years, and mm-hmm. it's very similar.
2: It's it very much uh, you're dealing with people mm-hmm. in crisis. Right. Um, so same question, JJ. I, keeping in mind that there's no typical day in the life, but what day in the life in your very multifaceted career could you give us kind of an inside peek at?
1: Um, I would probably draw back on uh, my time with the Secret Service just because so varies where I'm. Uh, like when you work patrols, you you don't have a routine day or a, a day that's uh, typical. But uh, that was that was one of the positions where I came out of the academy, and it was an election year, and bouncing um, city to city, protecting president or vice president, uh, working. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then then when it settled down after the election, you're you're working a counterfeit money investigation. You're working. Uh, it could be check fraud um, or to clone cell phone case, but then you get then back in. And I'm I'm dating myself on this, but your pager goes off and uh, you call in the office. And next thing you know, you're grabbing your bag at the, at your apartment, and, uh, heading to the airport, and you're in New York with President of Croatia who came to visit, or whoever, um, and you're you're bouncing around quite a bit. So, um, so I, I was very very fortunate to to be in a situation where I was exposed to to all those things from from working, you know, a low level $200 counterfeit case where some kid decided to try to print $200 on all those uh, collar printer at home to, <coughs> to you know, uh, multi-million dollar investigations and presidential assignments and threat cases. And uh, I, well, I'm pretty sure I'm probably one of the only people who's ever taken an official report on the vice president of a country shooting his hunting partner in the face. So. Yeah, we, we were going to
2: get to that, and You're talking about Vice President Cheney. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He, That that was when I was with Secret uh, Services Intelligence Division, and you ha- you had to write reports <laughs> of anything that was good. of public interest, and uh, strangely enough, that qualified. That's um,
2: <laughs> strangely. Yeah,
1: yeah. I walked in and. Uh, I asked a uh, fellow agent who I was uh, relieving off of his shift if there was anything to pass on to me that I needed to run up and take care of. And he, uh, he said, no, no. Oh, the vice president just shot somebody in the face and he walked out. And uh, <laughs> that was my day. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, it was, it was kind of all over the place. Um, um, and, and I was just very, very fortunate to, to get to do that in a couple different cities in Richmond and D.C. Mm. And uh, get to bounce around city you to know, city, multiple countries. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, I don't know, you know if there's a, a, a typical typical day on the job, but you know, probably <laughs> as deranged as, as the does it sounds, I enjoyed my time you know, looking for bombs, uh, doing technical security, uh, and um, working with threat cases who you know had had a tendency to want to assassinate people more than anything. Um, uh, so, yeah. yeah you know, no, now, it doesn't. I, I, As I'm talking, I'm starting to realize, all my wife is really happy, I'm on the training side now. <laughs> so. yeah.
2: yeah, but it doesn't sound deranged, actually. I mean, I think a lot yeah. of listeners of Inside Throw can probably relate to that you know, adrenaline charge that comes from no day being the same and high stakes and and all of that. Um, And I really want to get into the transition you should be made to writing and um, also our questions. We have some great questions. But Isabella, real quick, tell us a day in the life that you would focus on. Not a typical day, but you know, it could be from when you achieved your highest rank, or it could be, you know, something
0: related like to that first day with the
2: crossing his arms over his chest guy, or okay. something in between. But give us a little inside peek at your career in law
3: yeah, yeah, I'll do a real quick one, and it is—I'll make it something different. Um, when I was the PIO commander, is when the Beltway sniper occurred around the DC area, and um, my jurisdiction had one of the um, one of the victims. And I will never forget that. It was like that whole time period, sort of like it was just all a blur. But as the person who was a spokesperson for the department and was handling all the media and stuff like that, I have this overwhelming memory of the entire city, the entire region really, being just in a state of total panic. Um, The terror, the horror of it, waiting to see who would get picked off next, um, trying to deal with the public, and their overwhelming fear and just the, the 24-7 cycle of, of dealing with that was something that, you know, in law enforcement it's like you're, you're trying to investigate and, and when you're speaking to the public and you're trying to let them know what the police department's doing, it's like you're thinking on so many levels, you have to think about this is what I'm telling the public, but on the other hand you know the bad guy, the serial killer's out there, that we're the them, they're listening to what you're saying as well. So you don't want to say anything that's going to provoke them, but on the other hand, you need to assuage the public and reassure them that we are doing everything we can. And then on top of that, you also are thinking about potential prosecution in the future, and there's only so many bits of pieces of information that you can release because you don't want to uh, interfere with potential prosecution. And so I call it like mental gymnastics, where you're Mm -hmm. speaking on about five different levels, on camera, live, with literally hundreds of reporters from all over the globe screaming questions at you. Um, But the whole time you're just feeling so bad because you wish that you could make it stop. You just feel the pain of the community and you're seeing people with tears in their eyes and they're begging you to help them. There's just nothing that was such a fresh cooker and that, that whole time event was just, which is truly remarkable and and something I hope never happens again. Oh, gosh, yeah,
2: the juggle. Five levels, like you said. Amazing. Well, you've all had amazing careers in law enforcement, clearly. Um, And I use the word amazing in in the true sense of the the word. And then at a certain point you made a transition and you became writers, which a lot of insights for listeners are writers um, in addition to being readers. I'm going to pause just to insert one of our questions from our Facebook thread, because I think it's a relatively easy one. And anybody can grab at this. Anybody can jump in. So we're going to take a real quick question from Brian Robinson. Brian is the author of Limestone Gumption, which I referred to before. It's got a scuba scene that I think Mickey would be very interested in, if you haven't read it already. Um, He's also the author of Daily Meditations, which is a book every writer needs, how to get through this crazy business. Brian, question for one of the female, uh, for one of the law enforcement on our show tonight. Isabella already sort of weighed in on Facebook about this. Um, would a female cop ever say something like "You're an effing liar" when the suspect lies to her about previous arrests? One of you, yes or no? <laughs> oh
0: gosh. Um, how how quick does that person want to complain? I mean, it's. <laughs> It, it, it uh, you know, it depends on what year we're talking about. I think I think officers are a little bit more savvy now, and the quickest way to end up in your sergeant's office or in the, you know, in an investigation in an internal affairs investigation, is to swear at somebody because nobody likes to be sworn at, and <laughs> even if you did everything else right and and you swore at somebody, it's it's going to be a violation of your, your policy. And so, you know, it's between car cameras or body cams, um, you know, there's, there's no defense for it. So uh, can you? Sure. <laughs> do you? Yeah. Do you pay a price for it? Yeah, you do.
2: Okay, great. So there's agreement actually amongst our LEOs on the show about that answer, and I'm gonna write a super realistic scene. And to draw JJ into this conversation, the law enforcement is going to scream, "Freeze, you mm-hmm. effing suspect!" Did <laughs> I get that right? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> at a certain point, and we have more questions to go to, but at a certain point, Isabella and Mickey and JJ, you all sat down and you wrote that first book. JJ, it was Resolve that was your first, I believe. And Isabella, you've just released Less Echo. And Mickey, yours is a drift. What What was the transition like? What one of you? Now I can't recall which hinted at. Oh, you said at the moment you were sworn in. Um, what was the transition like? What prompted it? And then, if law enforcement is crazy, I'm going to go out on a limb and say publishing is even crazier. But tell me if you disagree with that. And just
0: talk a little bit about the transition and let's talk with Jay start with JK.
1: Um, for me I, I, I guess I have to thank D C traffic. Um, because <laughs> I was I, I was reading crime fiction and my wife was reading crime fiction a lot, but when we moved to D C and we both sat in traffic for an hour, an hour and a half each way or a day, uh, we listened mm. to audiobooks as well and we would listen to the same book. Back then it was uh, tapes or CDs, and we would trade them off and we would then listen to the same book and we would talk about it in the evenings and what we liked and disliked, what we would like to do different. Um, and I probably after a couple of years of this, um, my wife said words that I'm sure she regrets. She said, you should try to write a book, and uh, being a male, I didn't listen for years. Um, but once once we moved up to the Pittsburgh area, and I was working an eight-hour-a-day job and not traveling all the time and not working shift work, I, uh, I eventually uh, decided to give it a shot, and that's when I, I resolved and uh, I had no idea if I could write anything. And I, I took it to my wife. I took the first three chapters when so I wrote them and after a few days, actually, and then said, yeah, "Here you go. go." And she she looked at it and she she didn't set it on fire and uh, she said that. She said, "I think this is good," and
3: she, I, I know a lot
1: of listeners would be saying, "Well, yeah, you handed it to your wife. And of course, she's going to." That's that's not my wife. Um, if if it was bad, she she would have said, "Yeah, maybe maybe we to go back to work on this." Um, but uh, I ended up uh, getting resolved um, It out there, and then it uh, got well. I got picked up by an agent, and then it ended up with a publisher, and it ended up uh, being a. Thriller Award nominee that year, and well, I guess 2014, it was the Thriller Award nominee for that first novel. So after that, mm-hmm. I kind of felt like, well, I, better, I guess I better keep writing. I guess hey, you know, I just, uh, got very fortunate with that first book, and, uh, and uh, now now it's just kind of one of the things that I feel compelled to do and, and love doing it once I really dive into it.
2: And you have three more albums then, two more albums down in the series? I'm sorry? How, you have two or three more outs since resolve? Uh, yeah,
1: resolve. Give us the title. Resolve was my first. Measure twice was my second. Um, chalk outline was my third. And bold text is the new one. And um, then I've got to, I'm with down and out books for at least one more, more.
2: That's fantastic, and I know that's great for fans. let Trevor Galloway, quick, quick yes or no answer. Uh, crazier than law enforcement or less crazy? Publishing as a business.
1: Less crazy. Okay,
2: um, Isabella, tell oh. us the transition. You wrote Bloods Echo. You 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 <laughs> you rose very high, and <laughs> you came to that ego um, inflating business of publishing. Tell us about
3: it. Oh, oh yeah, ego inflating, right? <laughs> well, what what I the thing about when you when you give up a command position, and then um, you're looking around, you're like, okay, where's my staff? Um, <laughs> oh God. Um, so yeah, I just I very much, actually, like, like JJ, um, sitting in D.C. traffic also did the same thing. I listened to audiobooks, hundreds of them over the years. And then, you know, same thing. I just was like, I really want to write, you know. But I had always loved to read as well. I also read in my spare time, too. And so that's when I knew I was to write and um, just so determined. And, but I took a break and, and after I retired and just, you know, studied really hard. Every book I'm writing you can possibly imagine. And then, again, Citrus and Crime very helpful there, learning how to do it. Before I actually yeah, you mentioned had them before. Wrote it. I wanted, mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm going to pause you and just yep. say let's give a shout-out. It's the Desert Clues chapter. Right? This is an international thriller writer's production, but let's give a shout-out mm-hmm. to Sisters in because we know Isabella. Maldonado is not the only writer that they have helped compel <laughs> to publish mm-hmm. that. So, so you sat down yeah. and you yeah. wrote Blood's Echo, and, the, yep. you know, J.J. talked about a fairly linear path to having you know, to getting on that, that sort of wheel, was it linear for
3: you too? Yeah. Well, it was, it was kind of backwards in a sense of um, right, as soon as I wrote it, um, there was a, we were having a, we were having a conference and um, Terry Bischoff from Midnight Inc. was there at the conference and um, Ordinary with, with Midnight Inc., they do not accept unagented manuscripts, but when their acquiring editor, who is Terry, is at a conference, she will um, sometimes accept direct pitches. And so she was there, I was there, so I gave, gave her my 60-second pitch. She surprised me by saying, yeah, send me the full manuscript. This sounds really interesting. So I sent her the full manuscript and I started thinking, okay, like, i got to start writing some query letters, you know, while, while she had it, you know, thinking i to start to see if I can get an agent. And then I was really stunned when they turned out to be a 3 deal um, right out of the chute. I was just like, wow, okay, uh, I guess I guess I better get going. So, um, <laughs> So book, book one is already out. Um, I just finished final edits on book two. The arcs are going to be, um, they're already uh, being printed and book two is being published in March and I am currently writing book three in the series. So mm-hmm. it's like off and running to the races. And I did actually at, at ITW at Thriller Fest, is another plug, I'm also a member of ITW. I attended Thriller Fest this uh, July and I went and um, I was able to acquire a an agent when I was at Turler Fest, so it's like I got the publishing deal first, then I got the agent. (laughs) (laughs) not the normal path, but um, Love by Lace, my agent, um, Liza Plizes from the Liza Race Agency, and, you know, she's been absolutely fabulous working with me on all kinds of other things. So, yeah, things have been going really well, and I'm very excited about it.
2: That's so interesting how there are so many different paths. And, Mickey, I want to hear yours, but quick yes or no answer, publishing or law enforcement, which is crazy. Isabella.
3: Oh, I'm sorry. Definitely law enforcement, much, much crazier. Wow. Okay. Um, Mickey, tell us. You became a
2: writer. You wrote a draft. You signed with – tell us a little bit about your publisher. I was about to spit it out, but I'm not going to. Because um, <laughs> I know that Inside Thrill listeners are very interested in that. And I really want to get to our questions. I cannot believe we have hit the <laughs> ten minutes more mark. I'm really shocked. Yeah. I knew the show was going to be jam-packed with, with information. So tell us. You became a writer,
0: and you have released a dress, and how was that transition? Nikki? Well, actually, um, I have a third – uh, publishing path in that I have two manuscripts that I consider training manuscripts. Adrift was my third manuscript. The first one was a police procedural, and I was still working, and I was too close. And you know, when you know too much technical information, you put it all in, and and mm-hmm. it was tedious. And but it was it was a t- tremendous lesson in that I learned, you know, what details are really important, what keeps the story going. And if it doesn't have a place in there, you know, you need to cut it. But that said, um, I found my agent through a contest. Um, I had entered my unpublished manuscript for address into the Daphne du Maurier um, uh, contest. And Helen Wrightweiser was actually one of the, the Judges after it got through, you know, the, the rubrics of people who pass it through. And um, so after I, I won the, um, the award for the unpublished mystery, I actually um, got a, a note from her that said, you know, I'd really love to, um, to talk to you about this manuscript. And so we spoke and she says, you know, I can't get your characters out of my mind. There's a couple of things that you know. I like any agent or like any editor. They have notes that they want to give you. She says, "If I haven't scared you off, I would like to have a conversation with you." And so um, I said, "You're going to have to work a lot harder to scare me off <laughs> to scare you." And, uh, and so we sold. Um, she sold the to Alibi, which is the digital imprint of Random House. And so. Um, that's yet another, another publishing avenue to go down. Yeah, a big like, like Isabella and, and probably JJ as well, you know, along the way there were short stories that were published and um, you start to build up your, your credibility and, and in fact um, one that's launched in was number one on Amazon for an anthology and that was Happy Homicide 6. Um, no. This week, actually. <laughs> oh, that's great. There's, congrats. There's a title for you, Happy Homicide. <laughs> <laughs>
2: There's a title that no law enforcement officer would question. Um, okay, quick answer, Mickey. Law enforcement or publishing, which is crazier?
0: There's less blood in publishing. <laughs> um, but, I'm, I, you know, you get shot at in law enforcement. So I'm, I'm going to have to say law enforcement is crazier. I think you get shot at in publishing too, but I take
2: your point. Okay, very interesting. <laughs> Here's a question. Who would like to answer? Let's, let's, let's go with JJ this time. Um, you have a lot of gear on. How much weight does it amount to? And does it impact your agility? And this question comes from Sheila Sobel.
1: Uh, well, when I was a police officer, it was about 40 pounds of gear with the ballistic vest. When I was a Secret Service agent, it was a little bit less because we didn't wear a duty belt. Um, does it affect agility? Well. Um, When I was a patrol officer, you see those videos now, now that there's YouTube out there, you see like the police officer stop and shoots basketball with some kids and and, it's it's a feel-good thing. I tried that once. Um, Thank God YouTube didn't exist. Um, I I tried to shoot a basketball with some kids and I never had tried to shoot a basketball with a ballistic vest on before. Um, and my, my belt, heavy and everything and I completely airballed and lost all credit of so, um, I just So I would say that you're, you're, not that I was a great basketball player before that, but I would have at least hit the rim. So, so I'm going to say yes, it affects your agility greatly. Um, the, when I was the Secret Service it was less, uh, we, we carried a little bit less equipment or the duty belt wasn't, uh, wasn't part of the uh, attire so it was a little bit better.
2: Forty pounds is a lot. Is it the same for men and women, and
3: independent of size?
1: Yeah, for them, it's the change.
3: Yeah, women wear the same. Women wear the same stuff. Um, I think mine was, you know, between twenty-five and thirty pounds worth of equipment, um, and uh, it was it was a problem. Here's a, another problem: as a, as a female, you have a smaller waist, and sometimes it was a real challenge to put all that equipment around your waist. Um, hmm. Just because, you know, you've got to fit so much stuff, and I would have to literally have to try to pick and choose, you know, maybe I, maybe I don't need, you know, extra this or whatever that, and, you know, I couldn't do it. And as far as chasing, it's absolutely no fair that I'm wearing all this equipment, and the, and the person I'm chasing sometimes <laughs> is, a, is a 19-year-old kid wearing a T-shirt and sneakers, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's all. You know, and you know, yeah. it's like this is no fair. And I, you know, so it really makes the foot chases a real nightmare.
2: Yeah, we got to get sandbags to the criminals to
3: level the plane. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It's like, I can't jump over that fence. you kidding me? <laughs>
2: it also puts uh, the lie to certain of our uh, shows we see on TV or in the movies. But we won't get started on that. Or we might actually circle back yeah. to that because it relates to a question. Veronica Marie Louis-Shaw, who is a writer we must all watch, a writer on the cusp, asks, in this post-9-11 world, would an international assassin, um, a hitman, or a hit woman, fall under Homeland Security's
0: purview? I can start that because when a crime is committed, you don't know who committed it. So the local jurisdiction, it always starts at the lowest jurisdiction. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're going to have either an officer or a deputy go out to the original crime scene. Now, it can go up through. The levels of, of jurisdiction um, based on information that's input, uh, but it, it would it would definitely start at the local. Where it ends up, probably. Um, well, JJ, you work more on the federal level. Um, who would you say would end up with that, uh, other than the FBI and Interpol, if it's international? Yeah,
1: generally, it would go to the FBI if. if, if. Now, it may depend on who the victim is. If it's a politician or a federal employee, it's automatically going to be federal jurisdiction. If it's just, you know, if it's Joe Schmo walking down the street, going to be local, unless there's some federal nexus, whether it be something across state lines or part of a, a larger federal investigation. So it, it, it depends. It may not be Homeland Security. It may be the FBI. Um, it, it just depends on who the victim is and what the crime is.
2: Okay. At what point does Homeland Security get involved, given the uh, post-9-11
0: landscape?
1: gosh. Homeland Security is such a a giant entity now with Homeland Security Investigation Entity and all the agencies that fall under it. It, It's going to be an agency under Homeland Security or Department of Justice. It just depends on, on where it happens, how it happens, and who it happens to.
2: Okay, Veronica is a fantastic reader of Inside well Guests' work. I am quite sure she's going to be reading your work. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, Veronica, I will Facebook connect you with any of the authors if you feel like you need more information about this. <laughs> um, we are almost out of time, but I, I'm going to take Crystal Seracis' question just because I think it'll be a funny note to end on. Each of you can give me a real short one-line answer about this. JJ already did, so if he wants to get a different answer, and that's fine. Crystal asks, what do writers consistently get wrong when writing about law enforcement officers, investigations, etc.? Um,
3: let's start with Isabella. Do you have an answer for that? What do writers consistently get wrong? I think they consistently get the time frame wrong. Like how long things take. Yeah. Wow. Good. Oh, very good. Mm-hmm. JJ. Oh, mm-hmm.
1: uh, police officers chambering around a in a weapon. Uh, people love <laughs> to watch the cops rack a weapon, and they've always already have a, a round in the chamber. So it's just oh, a, good. for dramatic okay. drive.
2: <laughs> yeah, you don't want those seconds wasted. Okay, good. Good. Um, Mickey. What's the right consistently <laughs> get wrong?
0: JJ took mine. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, talk, you know, talk, weaponry. About, talk
1: about lieutenants who don't supervise anybody.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, um. they're, they're just wandering around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, weaponry is a biggie. Um, yeah. You know, somebody playing Russian roulette with an automatic versus a revolver. Um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> living to tell the tale. Yeah, You know, yeah. it's just sometimes you just don't know
2: what you don't know. Right. Yeah, weaponry. I'm going to give a big shout-out for Lee Laughlin's Writer's Police Academy because I oh, it's a amazing. very good resource for people who really want to uh, get it right and not make these kinds of errors. So are our guests. Our guests are obviously fantastic resources. I really urge Inside Thrill listeners to check out Blood's Echo by Isabella Maldonado. Um, J.J. Hensley, you might want to start with Resolve, but certainly the new um, Trevor Galloway book out now Bold Action, Action Remedy is going to tug at your heartstrings Adrift by Mickey Browning all three books will give you several thrills and some really interesting looks at um, you know careers that you might not otherwise get to see from the inside so thank you so much Mickey and Isabella and JJ for being my guests tonight listeners thank you for tuning in to Inside Thrill and all of our Facebook and Twitter uh, followers and friends who wrote Uh, questions in, thank you. I have giveaways. So if you submitted a question, you are entered in a giveaway for one of these wonderful books. And I hope you all enjoyed the evening. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good night, Inside Thrillers.